You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. All the girls are complicated. Everyone is precious too, and you might get lucky if you do. Oh, you might get lucky if you do. Find the one that makes you laugh. Find the one that takes your breath where you won't get everything that you want. Oh, but you'll need one to don't Hello and welcome to episode 158 of the Christian Feminist Podcast. I'm Sarah Thomas, and with me today are Sarah Kluster and Christina Bieber-Lake. Hello, ladies. How are you doing? Very excited for this topic. Yes, me too. It's great to be here. Excellent, excellent. So let's, um, by way of introduction uh, today, uh, let's go ahead and introduce ourselves. Sarah, would you mind going first? Hi, everyone. My name is Sarah Kluster, and... In addition to just, I'm very excited for this episode, I'm going to go ahead and make the statement. I am the Christian Humanist Radio Network's resident trashy romance novel expert. And so I am glad yeah. I'm finally going to be able to show my true expertise for all the world to see. Nice. Wonderful. <laughs> I'm so glad you decided to join us for this episode tonight. I look forward to your insights. Uh, Christina, how about you? I am not the trashy romance novel expert, but I am very delighted to talk about Bridgerton, which totally captured my attention. So I'm super happy to be on the show tonight. I teach literature, American literature in particular, at Wheaton College, which I've done for over 20 years. And I'm still completely uh, able to be, you know, wooed by a show like this one in spite of um, all of that. Uh, well, thank you very much, and I'm glad I get to record with you again. We recorded not too long ago on another TV show, so I'm glad you're back for this one also. Um, and I am yes. Sarah Thomas. Yeah, I'm Sarah Thomas. I uh, live in the metropolitan Atlanta area uh, with my husband and my two dogs, and I teach uh, British literature and AP English literature at one of the area independent uh, high schools. And so I'm thrilled for us uh, to be here tonight to talk about Bridgerton. Um, it first hit my radar when it was released in January of uh, 2021 on Netflix. Um, and I know that the Bridgerton fan community is eagerly and anticipating the release of season two, which is supposed to be forthcoming in the new year. So I thought since we're coming up on the next installment, it might be helpful for us to spend a little bit of time revisiting season one and exploring some of the ideas, some of the things that we can take away from this series as Christian feminists. Uh, before we get any further into the episode, I do want to uh, give our listeners a heads up about the mature content of the TV show. The show deals, frankly, with the good, the bad, and the ugly of courting and marriage, uh, socially, psychologically, and sexually. We will be discussing some of these issues in this episode, so please keep this in mind as you're choosing when and where to listen. 
This episode is probably not one that is safe for listening to while you're at work or around young listeners. So please keep that in mind as you choose to continue listening with us. So before we get into the uh, into the meat of the TV series itself, I thought it might be helpful for us to think a little bit about and talk a little bit about when we first encountered uh, Regency narratives. And by Regency, we're referring to the early years of the 19th century, um, primarily in England. And, um, and the books lots of people uh, associate, for example, Jane Austen with Regency era narratives. So I thought it might be fun to talk about when we first encountered these narratives. Um, was it through books or TV miniseries or full-length feature films? And what were our initial impressions of the genre? Um, Christina, would you mind taking, uh, taking that one first for us? Yeah, that's pretty easy for me because I am an Americanist, and so my expertise is in American literature. So my first exposure to Regency narratives would really definitely be through Jane Austen, you know, who everybody reads as an undergraduate who's studying English. And I mean, of course, I didn't fall in love with it in the way that it became my passion to study, you know, <laughs> Regency British literature, but I really admire what Jane Austen is doing. And I would make the argument that what Jane Austen did is what makes Bridgerton possible in all of the ways that it is um, exceeding the genre. Um, it's because of Jane Austen. I think that's a really good point, um, Christina. And I would, uh, I would agree with that. And um, there, were there any film, any other film or TV adaptations you've come across over the years? No, you know, I, you know, I'd have to sit there and think about if there was anything that really struck me besides just reading the novels and teaching the novels of Jane Austen. I mean, one of my all-time favorites is, um, is Persuasion, actually. And the subtlety of that novel is just is so brilliant. And I, and I feel like um, the writers of this story, and particularly Shonda Rhimes, who's the you know director of this whole series, I think she gets it. I, I think she gets what Jane Austen was getting at. Absolutely. I would totally agree. Um, Sarah, how about you? When did you first come across Regency narratives? When did they first hit your radar? And so what were your first impressions? <laughs> So I have kind of known about Regency era romances my whole life because my mom read them. And so I would see them on her bedside table or they'd be with her in the car when we'd be traveling. I read my first one. Goodness, it feels weird to have such a clear, distinct memory of the very first time I read one. But I guess it must have, it clearly made a huge impression on me. Um, so I read my first one when I was probably about 12 or 13 and I was immediately hooked. Um. Now, it wasn't until later that I probably re started reading um, some that were probably a little more um, R-rated because because when, you know, when I was 13, the only ones I was allowed my mom would buy me were the little were just the, you know, there's a really passionate embrace and then that's it. Right. But I was immediately hooked. Uh, the idea that, you know, some lowly little governess or just nobody from the country could come and you would, you know, there are there are all these things that we think of as like tropes from basically just romance in general, right? Like the class difference of the really wealthy guy, or 
the like there's there's frequently a makeover scene right where they she wears ugly dresses and they take her to the modest and she just gets these clothes right like us almost like that scene those scenes in pretty woman um and so i i just fell in love with them and i've i've read them my whole life um and so i had read all the Bridgerton books years ago and then i was like oh they're making a netflix series out of this really that's not the series i would have picked if i was going to be making a series of like regency romance novels but um so I've, I've read them my whole life uh and there's a lot of and so there's probably a lot of stuff that i think that i know because they're just tropes of the books but they're pro- but are probably not at all accurate to obviously what was historically happening at the time but i think i know because certain historical characters will continue to show up in the books as just like part of the meta as if you will of regency romance novel yeah. Can you sure. explain what what your young you know self was attracted to? I would really like to know. Well, so some of it was just, you know, what you know, the same reason that like when I was 8, I liked Disney princess movies, right? That this is a they especially with this particular format that they have with this is that they get to go to the big city that you know, here's a girl who gets to go to the big city and she falls in love and I if I'm a weird, awkward adult, that's only after years and years of really intense polish of being a super, super weird and awkward, like, preteen, right? And so, <laughs> like, I've been, I've been sandpapered and smooth so much. Like, you would not believe how weird I was when I was a kid. <laughs> and so being able to be like, and so being that 10 or 12-year-old and being like, oh, maybe when I'm a real grown-up, like a 20-year-old or something like that. And part of it was also that, like, you know, when you're, when you're 12, somebody who's 20 seems like a real adult, right? Totally. Yes. And and so these were, and they were quick, they were like, the only sex that was in some of the the ones that I was allowed to read when I was like really little, I say really little, when my, that my mom would let me read when I was like 12 and 13, were, you know, there was a really, there were like two or three really passionate embraces and even then I'm like, whew, it's giving me a little hot under the collar as like a 13-year-old, right? Um, so, th- I mean, there's a lot of that kind of stuff that went to it. But I, I just, I loved the happily ever after. I think that just went with it that like, well, of course, uh, you know, of course I want this fairy tale happy life that is presented where you get to marry a rich lord and be the lady of a house and all that. Um, and I guess the other thing that was really kind of hooked me on it was not even the book Pride and Prejudice. I mean, I, I enjoy the book. I really enjoy that. But the 1995 Colin Firth <laughs> Pride and Prejudice. Um, I think. Oh, yeah. Now you're talking. Yes. Now you're talking. Because I think that one did a really good job of showing. Oh, yeah. these, like there's so there's one of the things that they do so much in Regency romances, because if, if they're doing one that is that actually makes you conform to the rules of the time, there's a lot of yearning. And like staring at each other from across the ballroom. And so I liked as a young Christian girl, this romance that was actually really clean, that like movies and all this other stuff that was contemporary showed people having sex and all the stuff that I knew that I wasn't allowed to do. Right. But here was this really formal courtship that was um, that was 100 percent. You're supposed to be like marriage from the beginning. Right. 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 And so like that really appealed to me that like oh look they can fall in love and have married and they're not having sex and they're right. not like dating for five years before they get engaged right, right. <laughs> like, so that, that just really appealed to me that makes sense 
That's a really good point. I hadn't considered that uh, either. But yeah, the fact that there is a, a clear focus and that there is, um, or that there can be, especially in, for example, the Austin novels, a, a uh, there's a, a chastity to the relationships that doesn't necessarily have to be oppressive in its approach. Um, I hadn't thought about that, but that's a really, really good point. Um, I, I have uh, a little bit of an embarrassing encounter uh, with Regency narratives. So um, I resisted Regency narratives for a really long time when I was in high school. Um, and early on when I was in college, I actually concentrated in 20th century American drama or tried really hard to for a good portion of my undergraduate um, program and then in my master's degree. And dude, like Arthur Miller. Yes, like Arthur Miller and uh, Susan Laurie Parks. And mm. um, I spent a little while dabbling in uh, Clifford Odette's. Um, but <laughs> yeah, it was, it was a pretty interesting mix of stuff. Uh, but one of the things that I had all, a part of me had sort of turned up my nose for a long time at Austin because it seemed like everybody loved Austin and I was inclined to be, um, an adolescent contrarian. So if everybody else oh, yeah. liked it, that's why then... I didn't like you too. That's why I said, <laughs> no, you too. Right. So then like, so everybody else yeah. liked it and all of the other girls liked it. And so clearly I was going to find something else to like, although I did really enjoy Jane Eyre, um, which I read on a dare from my ninth grade English teacher. Um, and really liked the whole time. And of course, and of course, I, that's I, not you know Jane Austen, right? Jane Eyre right. is a totally different, right? Exactly, yeah, exactly, right. I'm a free human being with an independent will. Yes. Which I now exert to leave you. Like, yes, that was that was my thing. Well, and Jane Eyre is just a great book. Yeah. Yes, yes it is. I really love it. Uh, but when I first, uh, so my first introduction to Regency was actually Emma Thompson and uh, Kate Winslet. In and Alan Rickman in Sense and Sensibility. And honestly, oh my gosh, that, is that a good movie or what? It, that is a great it, film. It's a, a great, great film. And I watched it mostly because uh, I was a big Titanic fan. Um, and I recognized Kate Winslet. And for a while, I watched anything I could get my hands on that had Kate Winslet in it. And she was Marianne Dashwood. And so, um, so I saw that and I really loved it. And then I really liked the um, I really liked the Kira Knightley, Matthew McFadden, Pride and Prejudice. Um, which Matthew McFadden does a really good job of the like smoldering stormy eyes or whatever. Um, but mostly I loved what I really loved about that film was the soundtrack. Which is interesting because I read somewhere that the score, the guy who wrote the score actually, who's the same guy who did the score for Atonement, which also had Kira Knightley in it, um, was actually trying to draw from Debussy. So things that were a little bit later than the Regency period, which yeah, that's sort of soft piano. It's yes. Lovely. Right. So drawing in those multiple influences, I think is something we can talk about with Bridgerton because that film takes some licenses in the scoring and uh, in some of the costuming and whatnot that I think is really compelling. Um, but I didn't come to the novels until after I had started teaching high school English and I decided, okay, if I'm a British literature scholar, 
and I'm working on a dissertation in British literature, and I'm working in the long 18th century, I probably need to go ahead and actually read all of these novels. So I, one summer, I set out to read all of the Jane Austen novels. And Good call. So I was in my early 30s, so I held out for like 20 years. But once I finally got into them, I, I thought, okay, I can see why everybody likes them, because there is, in fact, a lot to explore, and in particular, Austen's gentle irony, her commentary on the milieu she's living in, you know, through the characters that she creates, I think is something that um, is really compelling and is something, again, that I think Bridgerton is drawing on, even as the series itself is uh, expanding uh, in some places is doubling down on Regency tropes and in other places is expanding uh, Regency tropes for the purpose of, I think, trying to make a similar sort of 21st century commentary. And so that's why I think it's really great that we're getting a chance to talk about the series. Um, but before we jump into our reading section, which for us is going to consist of season one of the TV show, um, Sarah, would you mind giving us a very brief background of the TV show itself um, and what season one is trying to accomplish. And um, I know it's ad adapted from a series of books. So if you wouldn't mind talking briefly about the series of source novels, and then uh, we can jump into some of the things that we want to talk about with the series themselves. All right, I definitely can't. I'm going to do like, y'all can't see me, but I'm going to kind of do like a little knuckle crack. I'm getting ready to use my moment, ladies. So, uh, Bridgerton. Brilliant. <laughs> so, uh, the one thing I will add on to what you were just saying, Sarah, is that the, one, of the, one of the main differences between kind of what Bridgerton is, like the characters that we'll have in Bridgerton and what you get in Austin, is since Austin was kind of writing what she knew, there aren't any, there's no, everybody in Bridgerton is aristocracy. Right. We have Lord this, Lady this, Lord this, all aristocracy. Austin as much is all gentry, right? And so you do kind of have that, that. That is one of the big differences, right? And most Regency romance novels all, you know, I, would, I don't want to read about a mere baronet or a, a knight. I want a duke, right? <laughs> I want, so, and that's kind of what the Bridgerton gives us. So the Bridgerton... The, I, 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 pardon, uh, pardon me, listeners, I'm going to keep calling this a movie. Uh, the movie, the first season of the movie Bridgerton, as I keep calling it apparently, is about a family, an um, arist aristocratic family called the Bridgertons. It is headed by the son, uh, Anthony, who is Viscount Bridgerton. There are eight Bridgerton siblings. And throughout the book and all of the books, because there are eight books, there there is one book for every single Bridgerton sibling. They everyone kind of talks about how the um, the fertility of uh, Lady Bridgerton, uh, Violet Bridgerton, and how she and her husband were very very happily married <laughs> to have eight children. And so one of the things that this <laughs> does is that all eight of these kids all grew up in a big family and that really especially influences our heroine for the first season, Daphne, who is the fourth, she is the oldest daughter of the family, but she is the fourth oldest child. So she in the series, she is coming out into society for the very first time. We see her getting ready to be presented to the queen and she is entering the London season on the marriage mart, which 
generally for the sake of most uh, society calendars and how it's portrayed in most books, basically starts and goes from about March to June. And it is the social calendar for which young ladies are presented and you go out and you do all of the society things in hopes of making a successful match. And that's what we want for Daphne. We want a successful, happy marriage because this is a time with coverture. What else are you going to do? <laughs> um, and so she wants this because she herself desperately wants to be a wife and mother because she's seen this with her mother. And that is something she wants for herself. We also meet our lead, the very dashing and very, very handsome Duke of Hastings. And he is coming into this like many a romance uh, novel hero that he has sworn off marriage. and He has sworn off love for various reasons. Uh, specifically, his father cared so much about the dukedom that he was a horrible father. So the Duke has decided that he is going to, the best way to get revenge for his father is to never marry and never pass on the title. So that can be the ultimate kind of stick to it to him. And so various sundry things happen for uh, Daphne is at first considered to be a diamond in the first water, which essentially means she's going to be the prom queen of, of the high school that is the London season. And so, but she has all these older brothers who kind of bully all the, all the eligible men away from wanting to court her, date her, whatnot. And so Anthony. So is that the way it was in the books too, that they just, completely so there is a, her? A big, no so one of the big differences is that in the book she's actually in her second season not because she's not a diamond in the first water the books portray her much more as a girl next door and that her brothers and in the books uh the duke asks her brother like well why haven't you picked asked the asked her brother the viscount well why haven't you picked a husband for her yet and her brother, Anthony, who is portrayed as being kind of overbearing in the movie. See, there we go. In the movie. And the book says, well, she's my sister. Of course, I'm going to let her make her own decision about who she wants to marry. Right. Like, so it's a very, very mm. different portrayal. Um, and you can kind of see through a lot of the imagery that they use. And for instances like that, that they're really trying to kind of up the ante of like female oppression right through that because you you get that a lot less in the actual book because he's actually a really nice supportive brother who yeah yeah um and in the book like in the book um he is actually in on he's actually in on the scheme that she and simon craft that she and simon the duke are going to pretend okay, to fall okay love. that's a really big difference yeah and so they're going to so they kind of pretend to fall in love and because the Duke, because he is very eligible, doesn't want mamas and daughters pursuing him and harassing him. Daphne is aware that men are kind of just like sheep. And wherever one of them goes, they're all going to go. And so she's kind of like, well, if you show interest in me, all the other men are going to want to show interest in me, too. Which happens in both the movie and the book. But... I think a couple of things that also make this different in the book, Simon is the one to propose this as opposed to Daphne. Um, and there is no scene where her brother picks Lord uh, Burbrook or anything like that. Burb, there, Wait, you know, I thought, I thought Simon did it in the film too. I thought. Did I may have forgotten that part, but Lord Burbrook, like he's there in the scene where he tries to like, he tries to kind of like forcefully kiss her, but she kind of just punches him and it's like, he's not this big nefarious 
character. He just kind of goes away. Um, there is a scene, they, they do kind of court each other, or he courts Daphne for a couple of chapters, and they go do on outings, and they waltz together, and all sorts of things. And they do have, share an illicit kiss in which they are caught. And so that means that Daphne, because she kissed a man, is ruined. And so the only thing that can be happening mm-hmm. is they, they go and they do the duel, or they start to do the duel. She does come in. She does say, no, we're going to marry. Um, and then a lot of the book kind of uh, follows fairly similar after that. Um, there, there are differences, but not enough to necessarily take up our dear listeners' times. A couple of things that do not happen in the book. Um, Anthony and his, like, falling in love with his mistress doesn't happen. Queen Charlotte, not in the book. The Prince, Friedrich, okay. not in the book. Um, the the Duke so being the friends scene. with the boxer, not in the book. So in the second half of the season, after after uh, Daphne uh, is facing ruin because she's caught kissing Hastings, uh, what happens in the second half of the season for the show, for our uh, listeners? Oh, yes, of course. So they, they do eventually marry after some difficulties and then they enjoy a very passionate married life for the first little bit and then but Daphne suffers from what is a very very typical trope of books of that era which is her mother tries to tell her the birds and the bees but can't quite bring herself to actually talk about it so Daphne doesn't really know what's going to happen and so there's a very crucial part of the marriage act that Daphne doesn't understand isn't happening because her mom won't, her, her mother, Lady Bridgerton, you know, is talking about birds and bees and feelings and love and just doesn't quite get it across. And so once Daphne realizes that her husband, who this whole time has been saying that he can't have children, Daphne in the book, in the movie, has been interpreting this, that there is a physical issue that he cannot do it. Daphne, mm-hmm. and I'm going to go ahead and just, you know, this will probably be the first time we'll have to say, you know, protect, uh, this is just the best way I can feel to say it. Because he will not ex- expend himself, um, then she doesn't, like, she doesn't realize that he is choosing not to do this. That he is made, that he is choosing to do something else. And so when she finds that out, she feels incredibly betrayed. Because she was marrying him with the idea of, like, you would if you could, which is a very different thing than I'm choosing not to. Mm-hmm. Um, he, they, and, and again, both times in both book and movie, they, they kind of have an argument, get drunk, and then they have normal marital relations. And mm-hmm. then in the movie, Daphne becomes pregnant by this. In the book, she mm-hmm. thinks she becomes pregnant, but she actually, it was, she thought that she was, but she wasn't. Mm-hmm. Um, both times, the Duke does eventually come around. They they make up. There's a nice, lovely ball. And the book ends, the book and the movie ends with the birth of a son that, you know, is kind of, that is kind of fulfilling that, yes, he actually has fulfilled this kind of duty, right? That he has, he has provided an heir, and that Daphne essentially has done her duty, which she has produced an heir for a great house. And in the, if I'm remembering correctly, uh, the, because all the episodes are starting to run together at this point, um, since I've been uh, 
binging them a second time in preparation for this episode, uh, there's an indication that they that they reconcile. So the the child that results is at least part of this marital reconciliation yes. that they're going through. Yes. So that the Duke of Hastings does come to understand the the merit and the value of the fullness of marriage and that that then, you know, that then results in the heir. Um, yes. Okay. Um, and so that, again, that happens to both of them in the, in the book. And I don't think this happens in the movie, but in the book, like she leaves him for about two or three months and goes home to her family. Yes, she uh, she leaves, she does uh, okay, come I, back to visit her family in the TV show. Yes, because um, the whole thing and she with does Tom spend some time with them. Yeah, but but so that does not happen in the book. In the books, in the books, she j- is just like, I need a break. I need to go back to my actual family, and so she is gone from him for about two months or so. Um, in the books, and then he, you know, he is he ponders things and all, and then he kind of comes to the realization that. He actually is living, he's still living for his father, even if he's living to make his father miserable, right? And so they have a, it's a very good chapter about that, um, but gets over that. Um, and then the book ends with the actual, the birth of their third child. So, you know, they become a, a their own kind of fam, uh, large family. Wonderful. Well, thank you very much for that, uh, for that dive into the first book and to the discussion of the first season of the Netflix adaptation. Um, so there's a lot, uh, as you hopefully heard listeners, uh, based on what we've talked about so far, there's a lot that we could dive into in the course of our time together. Um, and we probably don't have enough time to cover all of it, but there are a few things that uh, I thought might be helpful for us to discuss um, and that we've sort of touched on already in the course of our time together today. And one of those is, again, this question of how the series navigates some of the standard tropes of the Regency narrative, the Regency romance um, regarding courtship and marriage. And, you know, where does it seem to uh, reinforce some of those uh, uh, some of those ideas from our source material and then where it seems to try to expand that narrative for a 20 uh for a 21st century audience in the Netflix adaptation. Um, and so some of the things that uh, we could talk about there and uh, tapping into what Sarah just described, um, talking about Daphne and uh, Hastings and their marriage and its seemingly rocky start, um, suitable or unsuitable marriage prospects. And then the question of old money and new money, which in the uh, adaptation on Netflix is embodied in the uh, in the family of the Featheringtons, who uh, the youngest daughter of whom is friends with one of the Bridgerton siblings, and who are trying, you know, to marry their three daughters off well, but are also, in some respects, fish out of water in this otherwise aristocratic milieu. So. Um, so if we uh, if we wanted to start with any of those, uh, where would you all like to start, ladies? Well, there's so much there. In fact, when I was rewatching 
the season, I was just totally stunned by how deftly the series just puts race, um, class, and gender in such interesting relationships with one another, which, of course, we know that that's what they're like, but it's like foregrounds all of that, right, to make us realize that these have always been in play and to help us to see kind of afresh how much they're in play. I mean, to me, that's one of the stunning achievements of the the TV series is just to foreground that even more. I don't know what you guys think about that. Yeah, I enjoyed uh, I enjoyed the way they did that also. And there are some there are some aspects of the show that I think are more uh, heavy handed than others or perhaps more or not more, but maybe less elegantly executed. But again, I think that one of the things that I think the show does well is uh, the the uh, dukedom of Hastings in one of the flashback season or one of the flashback uh, scenes in one of the episodes in season one, there's a discussion uh, that Simon's father is having. And there's a discussion about how the king has granted them the title and that there is that for the family in particular in the TV adaptation, um, the Hastings family is of African descent. And so there's discussion of how it's a it's an uh, a notable uh, and a, a notable I don't want to say accomplishment, but uh, acknowledgement on the part of the king and queen to have been granted this noble title and that this is something that, uh, you know, that means more than just something for their family. And um, there are other aristocrats in the show who are part of this same group who are also um, who are also navigating uh, aristocratic life. And um, and so I do like the fact that that um, to your point, Christina, that that's something that was navigating again, navigating that intersection of race and class and trying to look at the interplay both in terms of commonality and in terms of uh the the degrees of um the degrees of difference in the approaches if that makes any sense i i realize i might be rambling at this point no that makes perfect sense I will say, um, also, I didn't necessarily mention this, there are no African, there are no black characters in the original book. Um, and, which I guess is probably obvious, but th- that was something that, because this is a, this is something that uh, Shonda uh, Rhimes very much was like, this was a big emphasis for this. Um, and I think for the most part, it, so I think it's interesting that, you know, they're, they're, they're going with the, mul- with the, um, multi-ethnic casting and it's one of the things that I remember some of the uh, actors and actresses talking about is that normally for these like extravagant ball gowns or like to dress up as the dashing duke that's generally only historically something that a white woman or a white man gets to do right because if we're doing something that is in the regions of England there were no black lords or ladies or members of the royal family or anything right um and so one of the things that I think is interesting on this is that you have is so you can you can see that the that the writers are trying to kind of make us 
or to comment on it, but you never actually see you never see them being treated poorly because of it, right? So you never like nobody's saying anything to Queen Charlotte about her ethnicity. No one like I don't I don't think anyone says anything to like Dabney. No one mentions anything to the character of Marina of like like no, they don't. No, they don't. People liking them or disliking them. Does that make sense? Even no, though they're here yes. saying no. things like. Yes, we are newly fact, arrived at this moment of prominence, but you don't like nobody is saying anything of like, well, I don't want to date, you know, well, I could never marry this girl because she is, she's like none of the characters, even the bad characters, right? Even the characters who we think yeah, would yeah. be like, uh, like the Lord Featherington. Yeah. You'd be right, like, well, right, right, he's right. going to say something really racist. None of the, no, no racism is actually right. shown in the show, right? There, no, but, but in fact, that's one of the interesting things about it, right, is that you, you go through several episodes. When you first watch it, you're thinking this is just kind of like Hamilton, right, where they're just putting in um, different characters, races w- without any commentary and just saying this is, you know, we're not even going to do it until well, you get to about I, what, episode four. And then they say like, oh, yes. the queen was married by this guy. And that's why our race is accepted. Lady well, Danbury and- says that. I I think that's right. Lady Danbury does make a reference to Queen Charlotte. And so one of the things and I've had this conversation with uh, some other um, some other friends of mine who've who've done some reading up here is that um, is that there uh, there is discussion or there has been discussion in some scholarly circles about Queen Charlotte's own. own family heritage and um and so some have suggested that she may have been um that she may have been descended from a black branch of the portuguese royal family and so I wait, think are we talking about in this show or it, like this in is real historically life? historic oh, historic okay. figure of Queen Charlotte? Yes, there is uh, there is some discussion about Queen Charlotte's descendancy from a black branch of the Portuguese royal family. And so um, there are some who uh, who suggest that one of the things that this adaptation of the novels did was take that. Um, that facet of Queen Charlotte as a character and uh, acknowledge it and then expand that um, into a discussion of the potential for aristocratic families who might not appear in, um, who might not appear in, for lack of a better term, traditional histories of uh, English aristocracy to have actually been present. Well, wow, that's really say, interesting. So there is some talk about that. It's a, there, and there, there definitely is debate about that, about if that, that is something accurate. But I will say, even if it is that she did descend from that, the 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 ancestor that they think that they'd have to attribute that to lived about 500 years before her. And so I I would always want to be really careful about being like, well, this one ancestor 500 years before. So therefore she has this ancestry because that kind of falls under that like one drop rule, right? Like one drop. There, 
Sure, and sure, I and um, and so I know that it's it's something that that has a number, you know, that that has a number of different perspectives, and and I think that and I think that that your point makes sense. Um, I do think that it is. Um, I do think that from a visual perspective, it could, you know, it can have the benefit of uh, raising awareness of an area of discussion that might otherwise be outside the purview of um, of an audience that is otherwise not inclined to be studying the genealogy of, you know, the Mecklenburg Strelitz family. Um, in the in the 19th century, although once I figured that out, now um, now I can't drive through the city of Charlotte, North Carolina, just on a total aside, um, without remembering <laughs> that the city, for seriously, the city of Charlotte in North Carolina is in Mecklenburg County, and Queen Charlotte was from Mecklenburg Strelitz, so you know, wow. so there you go. <laughs> counties in North Carolina named for Queen Charlotte. Um, well, and you live in Georgia, so, you know. Yes, exactly, and I live in Georgia, so, you know, yay penal colony. Uh, <laughs> but, at, uh, but with the, you know, with the casting in uh, Shonda Rhimes's adaptation of the show, and I think uh, Queen Charlotte as a character, and then expanding Queen Charlotte uh, as a character to incorporate um, to incorporate other aristocratic families, I think allows for, I think provides an opportunity for Regency era narratives to um, to expand their potential for connection with audiences um, in terms of um, in terms of representation and in terms of some of the storylines that are discussed, which. I find, uh, which I find particularly uh, compelling uh, as far as this series goes. Um, and speaking of Queen Charlotte, one of the things that I, it, that initially caught me off guard about Queen Charlotte uh, in the TV series, who I thought was brilliantly played, um, but- Yeah, the, the actress who does her is just this wonderfully imperious. Yes, I yes, and I hate it. her. Right, <laughs> love to hate, awful character. Yes. Yeah. Um, so, so one of the things that I really did like about her after I figured out what was going on um, was the way that uh, the show costumes her, and by extension, the way the show manipulates. Um, or I won't say manipulates, uh, the way the show uses costumes in particular to expand some of the commentary. And I know sometimes at the expense of historical accuracy, but I think still does some things visually that are really fascinating. And I know, Sarah, you and I had talked about this a little bit before we started recording. Um, so I really liked, and I hadn't realized until I started doing some uh, some research into it that uh, Queen Charlotte, the historical figure of Queen Charlotte, did in fact um, dress for a good portion of her life as she did when she first came to the throne. So in the production, which is otherwise, 
you know, which is set in, I think 1813 is stipulated um, at the beginning of episode one with the empire wastes and the uh, more narrow silhouettes that, uh, you know, that are coming about in the Napoleon, you know, also in the Napoleonic era, uh, Queen Charlotte instead is wearing much longer waisted gowns that uh, that are much more reminiscent of, say, the 1770s or the 1780s. Um, Which honestly, I would much rather wear those. It's I, I, I also find those silhouettes a lot more compelling um, uh, you know, or a lot more interesting. Um, so I'm, I agree with you, uh, but she also, she manages to, uh, to be dressed in a way that in many respects seems wholly at odds with everybody else that she's surrounded by her, the, uh, her ladies in waiting dress in similar, more obviously late 18th century profiles. Okay. Uh, but, but the other aristocratic families are all dressing, um, in, more modern, modern. Yes, yes, in the okay. empire waist. But she's allowed, you know, she dresses sort of out of step with the time, and that. Well, and she's an older lady. I think that that totally makes sense. Yeah, to me. My, exactly. my grandmother wears stuff that's not like you know chunky ribbed sweaters and like you know high rise like whitewash blue jeans or whatever like kids are wearing sure. these days. Which, by the sure. way, totally don't understand. But one of the things that I found out while doing a little research on this, because if you, because dear listeners, there are like 18 million costume reviews of Bridgerton on YouTube. So you can kind of just find any of them. But one of the things that I found out when I was watching them, they showed them. Oh. So uh, either Sarah or Christina, have y'all actually seen what Regency court dresses look like? No. Okay. Yes, I have. Okay, so Christina, what they look like is because Queen Charlotte kept these old formal rules, right? And so court dress is always like two or three generations behind because it's being set by a queen who is much older, right? And so she is saying, this is the style of dress you must wear, right? And so she is insisting, not that they, they wouldn't be crinolines because that's not until the 18th, until the 19th century. But whatever it is, is the big thing, like little hoops that make your dress stick out to the side, right? Like that. Like they have that in the style for her when she was wearing it, is that it's at your the natural paniers. Right? The paniers, right. So yeah, because, the paniers are the are the hip pads, yeah. Yeah. And so because this is the this is that empire waist is what's in style, the paniers are going go out at where the waist starts. And the and the waist starts at an empire waist right under your boobs. So you have these cord dresses where you have these big side paniers coming out right out of the woman's boobs. And going all nice. the way to the floor. Okay, so that's great. If you look at, so if you find a picture of them, they look so dumb. Oh my God, they look so dumb. So I, so I, so it totally makes sense to me that they were like, okay, we're obviously not really going for accuracy. We just want our people to look conventionally attractive. We're going to put them in a traditional empire. Like I, I, I do get that. But I think it would have been fun. <laughs> I think it would have been interesting to try, you know, and I obviously artistically they'd have to be going for something else, but you know, like with the like the newest version of Emma, right, with Anya Taylor Joy, like they had some of these exquisite, like ridiculous over the top like hairstyles and that kind of thing. I think that they could I think that they do miss I think they did miss a little bit of an opportunity to show the ridiculousness and the the ridiculous pageantry of it all. Right. Like rather than like showing the like, 
oh, here's us getting laced up in a corset that we don't even wear until the mid, like, 19th century. Like, just yeah, but what the about the queen's hair? The, the queen's hair um, mm-hmm. though, was kind of ridiculous in that one scene. Because I was watching that. My husband came out. I was like, whoa, what's that? Because he wasn't even knowing what's going on. But it was like, whoa. she had this, like, do you remember what this? Is what if I do remember that. And one of the things that I that I have that I thought immediately of were some of the um, some of the other uh, very elaborate powdered wigs from um, from the 18th century. So, you know, there's the there's the yes. uh, legendary one with, you know, that stood really, really tall and had the boats in it and, and stuff yeah, like that. Yeah, like, a couple of hers have, like, she has, like, fake birds with bird cages. So, sure. And so I, I read, you know, visually her, uh, her wigs as, um, as sartorial nods to that actual, his, you know, to that historic inspiration. But again, uh, sort of amping it up to create a sort of visual feast for the eyes. Um, something that is, again, trying to raise uh, or highlight the degree to which uh, manipul- or maneuvering through the London season is a kind of performance and involves a series of costumes. Yeah. And that... Total. It's all performance. All of yeah, it. Yeah, and so playing up the costume aspect of the clothing is something that sort of reaches its... Um, it's Zenith in Queen Charlotte, who again is dressing to the uh, period in the prime of her life, but is also sort of presenting the, um, you know, the sort of ultimate presentation of court life and aristocratic life as spectacle, as performance. Um, so I thought it was a lot of fun, um, even even when the wigs themselves didn't look entirely accurate even for a late 18th century um you know even for a 1770s or a 1780s silhouette um out mm. of curiosity um what are, what was your thoughts on um the storyline involving uh marina I'm I'm always kind of unsure about like what we're supposed to think of her because like she clearly like she gets herself into a family way um, and then her, her beloved, her intended goes off to war. And so she comes to, uh, London to basically, cause we're trying to find a man to marry her quickly, um, so that her child will not be illegitimate. Right. And so she kind of concocts this plan, um, because she just kind of sets her sights on Colin Bridgerton because he's very nice and he's interested in her. And so she's really trying to do everything she can to push him into this marriage, um, and then we find out that she thinks maybe she's not, uh, pregnant. And then it finds out that we still are. She ends up finding out that, uh, her beloved, um, was not ignoring her letters, but had in fact died. And so she ends up to, to save herself and give her chill and give her, her child a name, right. As they would say, so her child wouldn't be a bastard. She marries her, her beloved's younger brother. What was y'all's thoughts on that particular storyline? Which, again, doesn't necessarily take place in the book. It kind of, they took a storyline from a few books later and kind of brought it into this one, if that makes sense. 
what was y'all's thoughts on her? Well, you know, it's interesting because we're talking about this whole performance thing and all of this is a performance, right? Mm-hmm. And she seems less willing to enter into the performance. Well, you know, kind of is a little bit outside of it in some ways and then is forced to kind of join it once she has to have her condition, right? Right, like she, so, she's a little bit outside of it, but then when it starts getting to crunch time and like she she hasn't heard from her, from George, she hasn't heard from George, she herself has to, like she has to indulge or she feels like she has to indulge in some of these kind of cut rate, very manipulative things that if another character were doing it, like if Mrs. Featherington was like, oh, telling a different daughter, like, oh, well, you should do this to actively seduce him so he'll have sex with you. Like, you'd be like, that is horrible, right? But how do we feel? But, you know, I feel like we're supposed to have a lot of sympathy for this character. Um, I can tell that I'm getting, one of the things I can tell as I get older is I, I do sometimes have less sympathy for characters in either movies, and they have these characters in books all the time where they really want to act like they just don't live in the society that they do that. Like they live in a society where the sky isn't blue. The sky is actually green. Right. Because the author is upset that the author is upset that the world was the way it was. And so they're kind of like, I'm going to create a character that's going to do. I'm like, I don't know. Like she would have been like, no, I don't want to be starving and have my children be bastards. And not like, she would not have like, she would have gone along with this more. Right. The idea that like no, I would rather I would rather my child and I live in the street than marry a man I don't love. I'm like, she doesn't really have an option about this, and she actually knows this in real life, right? <laughs> one one of the things that I found most interesting about Marina's storyline, there were two things, and they were actually sort of subplots within Marina's storyline. One of them is the friendship that develops between Marina and Penelope. Right. And and the way that Marina ends up providing Penelope with guidance or instruction, like teaches her about love and what a loving relationship could be based on her own experiences um, that she doesn't get from her family. Right. That she doesn't get from her mother. You know, she sort of has to seek this information out uh, from another source. And that source ends up being Marina. Um, The other thing that I found really fascinating about Marina is that Marina, as a character who is arriving on the London scene. In a delicate condition that she is. Trying to disguise ends up staying with the Featheringtons who are themselves outsiders, who themselves are sort of struggling to to fit in with this highly performative set of aristocratic, you know, this highly performative aristocratic circle. Um, And then she ends up being, in some respects, being more successful at it than the Featherington daughters themselves. And I thought that was yes. a really fascinating dynamic. Um, well, I wasn't quite sure what to make of it, um, you know, or sort of how I felt about it ultimately at the end of season one, but I did find that really fascinating. 
So I, that, so I'm really cynical and I'll say, well, the reason she had an easier time navigating it is that she is portrayed as much more conventionally attractive than any, any of the Featherington daughters. And so yes. being much more conventionally attractive is always uh, the best way to really get along in society is to be attractive. Um, and sad, but true. Yeah. Um, and so I think she also has like the character is presented here because the character actually has kind of a tragic story um, and is actually related to the Bridgertons um, in the book. Uh, I think one of the things that you kind of see here is that also she gives the she gives the vibe of that she's not super interested in any of these men. Right. Because she's actually in love with with her with her beloved. Right. And so an attractive woman who seems kind of hard to catch is always pretty alluring to men. Whereas Correct. unattractive and desperate, which is what the Featheringtons give off. It's just like, that's something that all, every single dating book in the world is like, don't come off as desperate. People can smell it. Right. Um, I think the phrase the kids are using these days is try hard. Okay. <laughs> and you, you as nice. a teacher, have way more insight to what kids are saying. So I will 100% go with you on that. <laughs> I but think like, it's called being a try hard. <laughs> yeah. Like they're like, they're desperate and they're kind of unattractive. Not, not that they're necessarily physically unattractive, but they just don't dress very well or they don't dress to their best advantage as my mother might put it. Um, that that's, that's definitely, I think works on it, but this is, you know, it's kind of odd. Stuff like this is, is always a little difficult because, um, you know, the, the show's trying to present a world where, um, you know, we're trying to like, okay, we have these newly, um, assigned, um, you know, that race was an issue. We have these newly assigned nobles because we're trying to, you know, all that kind of stuff. But there's also, and so we acknowledge that as a part of the real world, right? But there's also, like, no acknowledgement that the wealth that all of these people have is built on the backs of, in the case of the, not necessarily the Bridgertons themselves, but of England, slave labor, like, still in their colonies, right? Uh like entailed land and there's all the stuff that comes on. And so we kind of, so it's kind of interesting that it's like, we're going to acknowledge some of the negativity that's happening in the world. Right. But on this other side, I'm making all these gestures that y'all can't see, but on the other side is this lovely, like, you know, we don't see, you know, we don't see anybody who isn't wealthy. We see like, we see very, very happy servants who are happy to do whatever it is that is asked of them by their master. Right. And then, and I guess, oh, I, like, see, we have we have a seamstress. Yeah, yes, a doctor, not But in featured, general, all the servants are incredibly happy to do whatever their masters ask. So, I mean, there, so I think but, it's interesting but, that you have these, like, some of these things we're going to nod at, and then other things we're just like, nope, not going to look at at all. Does that make sense? Well, no, it, no, but it, it, does. it does. But there's also, there's also the whole other, like, the, the working class, the opera singers, the, the people who end up doing the, you know, sort of bourgeois jobs right the middling sort. the slumming the middling sort but then you know the time that they that the featherington mother takes them to the takes um, marina to the slums right this is what you're going to be your life is going to be like and marina's like no i don't care because these are working people you know so there is some effort to show that this whole thing is totally a false setup right like it's just a I, I think so. And I think um, 
I think there are gestures. I think that that there could be a lot that said about the the show itself perhaps being less than elegant in its execution of of some of these issues. Um, the fact that the issues are brought up at all perhaps could be nicely said. Right, it could be considered a you know a step in a direction. I think ultimately one of the things that comes back for me is something that. Uh, actually, I saw in an article, and I can link to it in the show notes, and maybe I'll add it to my list of passing on, um, because I, I do remember coming across this article several months ago, it was one that was published in Vogue about the costume inspirations for the show. And one of the comments that was made was that the goal was for the um, the impression to be aspirational rather than accurate so in some respects uh i think wait what do they mean by aspirational because i'm really interested by that yeah so with regard to like with regard to the fashion in particular um the idea was to make the clothes uh let's see um Let's see. So trying to create something that is visually sumptuous and something that uh, that the audience might, you know, might be able to envision themselves wanting for themselves rather than being something that's historically accurate. Okay, that that's so great, because considering when the when the series came out, like in the middle of covid, whatever, it was just a feast for the eye. And I loved it. Right. Because of that. I loved it. I wanted. Yeah. And I think, and I think there is certainly some degree to which the show feels uh, feels a little bit soap opera reminiscent. And I, um, but you know, soap Sarah, opera it, in the ways that soap it's better than a soap opera. Like yeah. it's just something that you need. It's an escape that you really want. Sure. So, so Sarah, if you were saying, you know, you're the, uh, you know, you're the Christian Humanist Radio Network's uh, uh, resident trashy romance novel expert, I will gladly take up the mantle of soap opera expert because I've been watching soap operas with my mother since I was 10 years old. Ooh, <laughs> oh my gosh! Oh, I was, whoa! Okay. It, 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 we watch because I, I was in All My Children, and then they canceled it, and I was so heartbroken. I was like, I refuse to watch any others. Young because- and the Restless, all the way. Like I was, I've been a CBS soap watcher. I was devastated when Guiding Light finally went off the air after seventy, oh my like, gosh. Th- like seventy-three years in production because it started as a radio soap. For me, my soap opera fascination began the year that I got pneumonia, and who was are you from, guys? Was home from school for three weeks, and so in, in general, in general. My like my father's rule, if we were sick enough to stay home from school, we were sick enough to stay in bed all day. So, you know, so like that and was watch the, the soap operas for, like, and watch the home? soap operas. I, I under and I, I understand. I absolutely get it. But what would happen for me, a part of it is nostalgic at this point, because that that month that I was home from school, um, almost month that I was home from school, my mom would sort of bend the household rule and would let me come downstairs for lunch so that I wouldn't have to like eat lunch in bed. Um, And she let me come downstairs and sit at the kitchen table and eat my lunch. And the young and the restless has always been on at 1230. And so she would turn on the little black and white, like the 13 inch black and white tube set with the, Oh my gosh, you guys. 
that was on the kitchen counter and she would let me watch it while I ate my lunch. And then I had to go back upstairs and get back in bed so I could rest. Okay. This is true <laughs> confessions from y'all. The Sarahs <laughs> are revealing their, their soap opera past. Yes, we are. So absolutely. And so, but based on that familiarity, there is something that feels sort of soap reminiscent. And, and one of the, like, and one of the, one of the jokes that my whole family has about soap operas is that, you know, it's, it's all about high powered families who are running multi-billion dollar corporations and like for as wealthy as they, they are and the corporation, yeah. they never work. They never work. None of them have ever gone to college. They, all of their ideas are like 10 years behind. Like, like someone will be like. Yeah. None of it, they're always like leaving the office or walking into the office or just like finishing up working the, on a like report. It's by the bell with high school, right? Like you're never in class. They're always just leaving class. Right. Just going to class or like they're at the max and they hear the bell ring in a restaurant. Like, yeah. I have to go to class. Or, like, or they're like in cocktail dresses at 10 a.m. on a Tuesday for, you know, for a board meeting. So, so with, with that idea yeah, in mind, nobody those aspects of Bridgerton sort of feel, uh, feel like in the same vein. So that again, the, the goal is, is something other than accuracy. It's, as you put it, Christina, a feast for the eyes. And there's sort of a, uh, perhaps, uh, we're encouraged to sustain a higher threshold for our, uh, suspension of disbelief, um, as far as those things perhaps. go. Well, all right. So I know we're I know we're uh, we're starting to run a little bit long, but before we get to our um, before we get to our passing on for the evening, one of the uh, one of the things that I would like to discuss, even if it's only briefly, and we sort of broached this topic when we were setting up uh, the season itself, is the way uh, the way that the show I think for some of our listeners might. Uh, find some redeeming value in the way that it chooses to approach uh, the way that it chooses to approach uh, what exactly the purpose of marriage is and the way it I I would argue um, and some some uh, uh, articles that I've read about this that I'm going to recommend in passing on have suggested affirms an understanding of marriage as a complete gift of self. Um, and I was hoping we could spend a just just a few minutes talking about that, because as as we mentioned already, when uh, Daphne and uh, and Simon are first married, uh, Daphne has been led to believe that Simon cannot have children. Daphne interprets this as a uh, physiological impediment uh, to having children when in fact uh, he is choosing to uh, to get revenge on his father by not siring children and so is choosing not uh, you know not to complete the marital act in a way that would uh, you know in a way that could result in children and when Daphne finds this out um, she's devastated and, um, and the show, uh, if sides there must be, the show, I think, encourages the audience 
to sympathize with Daphne's perspective, um, which is not to say that uh, Simon's own concerns about his father and and the uh, you know the trauma of his you know the childhood wounds from his own experiences with his father uh, are not being diminished. But I think there's something to be said um, that as the Christian feminist podcast, perhaps we could um, perhaps we could explore. I'm not sure. Um, if either of you ladies uh, has any additional thoughts on that. So one of the things that I think that is also good about um, in the, the particular novel, um, this particular novel, and then a lot of things that I think that is actually interesting and nice about some of the historical romances is, you know, because, because Daphne is growing up in the Regency and she is the daughter of a Lord, she's the sister of a Lord, what she wants in life, and that is very much stressed in the book, is that she she loves her family, and he, her greatest desire is to marry, have children, and be a mother, right? And that's all she really wants in life. And I think that sometimes we have to have a historical book for that to be a legitimate thing to want, right? Because most romance novels now, because I read plenty of non-historical trashy romance novels, like she has to really want a career and she has to have been a career woman and she's falling in love when she's 37, which if that's what happens for an individual, that's fine. I mean, I didn't get married until I was 34. Right. So I, I definitely got in what, I guess maybe the, the for Christian culture, I got married kind of late. Right. Um, and so I think it's, it's really Me nice too, for, for the record. <laughs> and so it's really, I think it's really nice. And one of the reasons that some of these can be interesting is that, the book allows that and it as a completely 100% legitimate life goal. Like Daphne doesn't like Daphne doesn't secretly want to write the great British novel. She doesn't secretly want to like start a clothing company. Her goal is to be like her mother, which in, in fact is a very conservative idea, right? That her goal is to wed, be married, and have a large family, right? Do you feel that's like that's her actual goal? goal? Do you yeah, think like that's it, actually her goal? Well, in the in, book, in the, the sense, it's her goal. Like in okay. the book, very specifically, she talks about how what she wants in life is to be married and have children. Now, okay. maybe there's other stuff going on in that, but like she does not have, she's not presented as that, like secretly being an author who wants to be published, yeah, or that she's yeah. a painter who wants to do like. It very specifically talks about she wants to have a family and and be a mother. Yeah. Okay. So the reason why I'm asking that is because my favorite character is Eloise, and I really like the actor who plays her, and the way she's smoking out in the swing sets all the time, right? Mm-hmm. And and she's, she's the one who's one. watching all this and oh. just is wondering if Daphne's desires are truly Daphne's desires, and if they are, then that's great, right? Then I can support that right like if this is what she really wants then that's great but Eloise is just like are you just forced into that situation or is this something you really want you know well and, and I so think the other thing ahead. that Eloise has the opportunity of though is Eloise is the sister of a rich man she's the daughter of a rich man she's the sister of a rich man so she doesn't Correct. you know but so is Daphne but, but, Daphne and, but I guess well. is that like she gets to she gets to Eloise gets like Eloise can choose 
to be a spinster if she wants. Now, there's a book about Eloise, so she eventually does marry. Spoiler alert. Um, and pre- oh, and- she does? Oh, yes, I'm very disappointed. That's a really, it's a really cute one. She waits until she's, like, older. She gets married at, like, 28, so everyone thinks Oh, that's so old. Freaking I know, 28. I know. Uh, but, uh... All that to say, so she eventually does get married in the books. Now they may choose not to do that with the character in in the in the movie, but um, she can, but she gets to make a choice that like I can choose not to marry, and she will be okay. Whereas if you think about like an, like we were saying in Pride and Prejudice, Charlotte Lucas doesn't really have a choice, right? She has to marry somebody or else she is going to be right, like right. destitute because her family doesn't have the money, and so Eloise. Right. And in fact, Penelope calls her out on that, right? That like, you got basically kind of like, you got a lot of privilege here that you're saying I should care about this and I have to care about this because this is a matter. That's true. Like, because whether or not we think this this should be right, you know, the feathering girls can't work. They can't go be governesses somewhere. They can't work in a flower shop. (laughs) Well, that's Uh, it. Yeah. They have to marry in order to provide for themselves. Well, and I think one of the other things, um, even with uh, Eloise's questioning of Daphne's desire to get married and have a family, I think, I, I think is understandable. And I'm, I'm glad that that, that that questioning takes place. Um, and I think that it does provide Daphne multiple opportunities to to think about it, right? To think about what she wants, and um, and ultimate when she when she does think that uh, that Simon is not able to provide her with children, she does decide that he is more important. So I think she's, you know, I think she's yes. trying to to figure out sort of, you know, if. If choices there must be, if it has to be one or the other, what is it going to be? And she has the opportunity to marry a prince and have lots of children, and she chooses Hastings. Um, but I think right, that even right. even with that, I think the fact that Violet, um, you know, that Violet Bridgerton has in fact been happily married, and she says lots of times, and in a way that I think is is directed in such a way that we're not that that the audience is not asked to question her declaration that she has been happily married and having a large family is not seen um, or is not viewed at least within the the world of the TV show as being an aberration or something to be the butt of jokes, right? That is, no, indeed. Um, and, and so, and I can we that, talk about her for a while? Right. Sure. Isn't she yeah. an interesting character? She just she like, is. Mm-hmm. she manages her children yeah. So well, there. So there's a line in the book where it talks about like she's actually annoyed with her son, but instead of telling her son to go away, she just starts talking about something very mundane about like the house, and he's just like, "Oh, okay, bye, mom." Nice. <laughs> and like, so she yeah, makes nice, him go nice. away by purposely like talking about like, "Oh, so let me tell you about the household accounts," and they're like, "Oh, okay," and yeah. like he stops arguing with her about something and just leaves. And she's like, well, and and she that's can, the best way to, to handle sons. Right. But she confronts Antony in the series. Like she just did, you know, she doesn't. Well, and I think that that's also really interesting. And that shows some interesting family dynamics because the house is his, right? Like 
that house is right, in town. He's obnoxious. Right. Right. But and he's it's so being, obnoxious. Right. The first. Yeah. Yeah. And again, and he, and so he's, you know, the, the movie, the movie, the, the series is presenting him that way. And like, but she is 100% um, in charge of that house and that family. And she really does manage it very well. Um, and she, and she's probably similar in the book and the movie about like, Ooh, you can marry a Duke. Um, and I, I would probably want to give her a little bit of slack on that. Cause I mean, I don't know what the equivalency of that would be now. Like, Oh, he was a starting quarterback and is going to med school. Like, yes, you should. Yeah. No, she's him down. Yeah. Like, you know, I think, like, I think it's very understandable and reasonable that she's like, Ooh, I would really want my daughters to marry well. Like it, again, it's very easy to poo poo. Like, well, I want my daughters to have a good marriage, but I think we all want our children to make really good marriages. Right. And, so I, I I would I just would not want to poo poo her poo poo on her too much. Not that y'all are doing that, but I think no. be like no no I'm just that saying she cares that her children get married. You know she to- she totally like smacks down Anthony in those early seasons. It's like you have been a jerk. Stop this. Like you are you are you know stopping Daphne's prospects here. You know what I'm saying? Like she smacks him down. She does. She does. And she she also points out that if he I think she's also able to remind him of his own responsibilities and, um, you know, even aside Correct. from the fact that like that as the Viscount, he's the one who's going to be responsible for keeping the title going. Um, and so he is, uh, you know, so she talks to him about his need to get married and she kind of calls him out for keeping all of these mistresses and not quite in the same way as his buddy Hastings, but, you know, also like seemingly not being all that interested, at least within the realm of the first season with, um, you know, with taking that aspect of his position seriously. She's still, she's still like, you're in charge of the family. Like if you want to be in charge of the family, be in charge of the family. And I, and and I can I can really appreciate that about her um, as the almost almost shades of the Dowager Countess of Grantham, uh, not yeah. nearly yes. as, not nearly as imperious, but also yes. unafraid to call out her son. Well, and so correct. And I think especially like if we think about Lady Bridgerton, like she raised eight kids, and so technically I'm trying to think about like what the what the timeline is on this. So her husband, the her husband, Lord Bridgerton, dies when Anthony is like 18, 19 or something like this. And one of the things that also show, like in Anthony's book, which is next, he has this like weird compulsion that because in his head, his father died at 38, which is about 10 years before this is taking place. He's convinced in his head that he will only live to be 38. Right. Does that make sense? And so he's like, it doesn't matter what I do. I shouldn't get married because I'm just going to leave. I'm going to die young like my father did. Like he just has this thing in his head, which is one of the things that kind of like goes on with some of the uh, the whoring, wenching, whatnot, right? Because he's like, um, but like Lady Bridgerton basically, you know, when I think the youngest Hyacinth is like, hasn't even been born yet when her husband dies, right? Yes. But you just kind of have does, to like, shepherding one makes. Family. All by makes reference to that in a conversation between uh, between Eloise and Daphne. Um, they they broached that topic um, about how scary Hyacinth's delivery was. 
Um, and yes, and sort of what happened there. Um, so yes, she, uh, yes, I agree. I, I really like Violet Bridgerton as well. Um, well, let's see. I know, uh, I know we're coming up on time. We should, uh, we should probably turn our attention to our passing on this evening, ladies, but is there, uh, is there any, uh, final, uh, final statements that we want to make about Bridgerton. We could probably break this into multiple episodes, um, but for tonight at least, is there anything else that we want to say? I will say that I, I could probably talk a lot about the costumes. The one thing I will say that they did that I, I, I'm never a fan of because it's always kind of a very obvious trope is the the very first scene when we're seeing like the girls getting laced into the corsets that they wouldn't have been wearing because you only need a corset if you really needed to find waist. And if you're wearing an empire waist, like there's no reason for them to be wearing those corsets other than as a visual thing of like, look how oppressed and restrained they are. Well, uh, thank you very much, uh, ladies, for agreeing to talk with us so much and for entertaining um, my desire to talk about a show that I think for for all of its uh, soapy fun and visual feast, I think does raise uh, several compelling questions for a, a 21st century audience and encourages us to think at least, uh, you know, a little bit more deeply about um, about some of uh, some of the questions concerning Regency narratives, but also how those narratives can continue to speak to a 21st century audience. Um, and with that, we will turn our attention to our passing on. Um, and let's see, Christina, do you have anything to pass on for us this evening? I do. I felt strongly that I wanted to recommend the writings of Afra Ben, who is a 17th century writer in English and really, was really the first professional writer in English, meaning that she got paid for writing. And I've taught the play The Rover numerous times, and it's so interesting the way that it reflects on the whole issue of writing, which we didn't get a chance to talk about tonight, but is a really important part of what's going on with Lady Whistledown and the whole um, with even Eloise writing the woman writer and her role in the whole narrative. So I would recommend the Rover in particular, but Afra Ben in general. Well, thank you very much. I wholeheartedly uh, endorse the selection of Afra Bain. Her grave was the only one I looked for at Westminster Abbey. Um, the headstone to her. And a uh, fun fact about the Rover, my husband actually uh, performed in a uh, community theater production of the Rover. Uh, many, are you many kidding me? Ago. What did he play? Uh, what did I he believe play? he played Frederick. Oh my gosh. Wow. I believe he played Frederick. That, okay, uh, that but has I'll have not to been performed that. very many times. Let's just face it. It's not been performed very many times. So <laughs> No, it's it's definitely been a while. Uh, but yes, uh, Afrobane, a uh, professional British woman writer. And yes, perhaps perhaps we'll have to come back for a second, uh, a second Bridgerton episode so that we can talk Agreed. a little bit more about her. Um, Sarah, what do you have for us tonight? 
One, I'm going to say, I can't believe we completely forgot to mention that Penelope was uh, Lady Whistledown. We don't have time to talk about it now, but oh my goodness. Um, you don't find that until a couple books in, but I think that that's really interesting that they have her as that. And then I'll actually skip on. So the two things, I'm going to recommend two things. One is a charming little uh, mobile game called Regency Love. And it is essentially a dating sim. <laughs> Where you are a young woman who is uh, newly kind of reintroduced to society after a year of mourning, and you have various suitors that you interact with, and you can select different answers, and there are different paths you can play. So there's like a path where you kind of end up with a traditional Darcy character. There's a path that you can play that you end up with a more um, with more of the Colonel Branding type, who's a little older. Um, and it's okay. This is disturbing. This is disturbing. Um, it's, I don't know, the music's really nice and soft and soothing, it's, and everything, the animation is very nice, soft, kind of pastel, um, so I can put that down as one of them, and the other one I'm going to say is the very first Regency novel I ever read when I was, like, 12 or 13, which is called The Nobody by Diane Farr, it's one of those, uh, little signet Regency romances, if y'all remember those, at uh, these things that we used to have called bookstores, and, it's very, very, it's pretty short in comparison to the novel, The Duke and, uh, the Duke and I. It's very, very clean in comparison to some of Julia Quinn's uh, books. Um, you know, just some passionate embracing and all of that. But it's it's probably, a, it, it takes a lot of the tropes that we've kind of talked about. And it was just kind of my first introduction to it. And it's, it's a very charmingly written book um, that's probably a good introduction if people are like, well, I kind of like to try this, but I don't want to read anything too, like, lurid i'd like to see it's probably it's probably a really good place to start all right thank you very much um i have not heard of the nobody i might have to check that one out um my recommendations uh for passing on for tonight uh, i also have two uh, one of them is posted to the Word on Fire Institute's blog. It's a post from back in January titled On Sex and Marriage, Bridgerton Stumbles into Catholic Truth and talks a little bit about um, about some of these issues surrounding Daphne's and Hastings' marriage. Uh, and the second one is a review of season one of the TV show that appeared in America Magazine uh, that is titled, Netflix's Bridgerton is a Feminist Disaster, but it almost redeems itself. Um, so two different perspectives coming out of... Um, coming out of uh, Catholic circles about season one of the TV show and uh, what they might have to say uh, to a Catholic audience and to a Christian feminist audience. Uh, we'll link uh, several uh, other of the things that we've referred to today in our uh, show notes. But with that, I will say thank you for listening to the Christian Feminist Podcast. We'd love to hear from you. If you have topic or reading recommendations for future shows, or if you just want to drop us a line, you can do so at christianfeministpodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on our Facebook page or at the network's Twitter handle at CH Radio Network. And check out the show notes from this and our other episodes at the Christian Humanist blog at christianhumanist.org. The Christian Feminist Podcast is a member of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Kristen Philippic is our press liaison. For Sarah Kluster and Christina Bieber-Lake, I'm Sarah Thomas. Tune in in two weeks for our Christmas episode when we'll discuss motherhood and the Virgin Mary. 
Until then, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, and in all things, love. <laughs>